Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It's said that we live in a secular age, but what does that mean? Is it simply that people are less religious, or is it something more? McGill University philosophy professor Charles Taylor wrote a 900-page tome called A Secular Age, in which he argues that secularity has more to do with a feeling of uncertainty about truth that pervades our culture, in which all ideas are contested and contestable. My guest today on the show wrote a reader's guide to Taylor's epic work. His name is James K.A. Smith. He goes by Jamie. He's a professor of philosophy at Calvin College, and his book is called How, parentheses, not to be secular. And today on the show, Jamie and I discuss what it means to live in a secular age, how we got here, and why it creates so much existential anxiety. Whether you're a believer, agnostic, or atheist, you're going to find some fascinating insights about today's culture. Jimmy and I also discuss his latest book, You Are What You Love, in which he argues that our lives are filled with liturgies, whether we know it or not, and how not being mindful of these liturgies can result in living a life you're not wholly satisfied with. Put on your philosophical and sociological hard hats. We're digging deep into the mind of human existence in this thought-provoking but accessible episode on secularity and spirituality. After the show, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash secular, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Jamie Smith, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Thanks. So you are a professor of uh, philosophy and theology at Calvin College in Michigan, right? Grand Rapids, right? That's right. Okay. And you've written uh, a ton, a ton of books. Um, (laughs) I I guess, yeah. Yeah. Um, But today I want to talk about two that I've read. Um, It's How Not to Be Secular and You Are What You Love, because I think they're related uh, in a way. Um, so let's talk about your first book, How Not to Be Secular. This is a, a reading guide to philosopher Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age. Um, can you give us a thumbnail sketch on Taylor and the thesis of, of his work and why you felt it was necessary to create this reading guide to th- this his book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Taylor himself is also a longtime professor of philosophy at McGill University in Montreal. He's Canadian, uh, trained in England, and has long been sort of doing um, what I would call philosophical histories of modernity. Like, he, he's sort of a genealogist of the contemporary. He, he helps us make sense of the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. He had an earlier book called Sources of the Self, which is equally important in many ways. And so his book, A Secular Age, is this 900-page tome that is wending and winding and difficult, but also like totally brilliant and incisive and widely, widely engaged and discussed. So, and, and, and what's interesting is Taylor himself is a person of faith. He's, he's a, a Catholic Christian who is in the middle of, you know, a mainstream academic world who's trying to uh, understand the nature of secularity. And so I had an opportunity to teach a senior seminar class uh, here at Calvin College and had 15 students sign up to walk through this 900 pages of dense philosophical history uh, in the course of a semester. And they all did it, and I was so proud of them. But what what became clear 
in that experience is here's a bunch of 21, 22 year olds who said, this guy's been reading my mail. Like he, he sort of, he's got his finger on the pulse of the world in which I live. And I started to realize that there was a lot of existential insight and bite to what he had to say. And, and it had a lot of nuance and complexity that seemed to honor the messiness of the moment in which we find ourselves. And so that's what convinced me that I really felt like Taylor's argument and analysis would help a lot of people who would never sign up to read a 900-page philosophy book. So I, I really just kind of came along as a servant of, of the master and said, I want to try to translate this for wider audiences because I think it matters. And I've, I've been really encouraged uh, by the response. And I, I should say, too, I mean, one of, one of the kind of highlights of my academic career was then getting to meet Taylor uh, about a year later, and uh, he very graciously welcomed me into his home, and he said, you performed alchemy with your work. You wrote the book that I was trying to write. So that was sort of like, okay, <laughs> I can die now. Right. Uh, what a great compliment. Yeah. Um, so let's get into the, the, the nitty gritty of this. You know, we, religious folks, non-religious people, we talk about we're living in a secular age, but sometimes I feel like we don't even know what that means. Like, it's like when we say, I'm living authentically, like, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. um, like, so what does Taylor mean by a, a secular age? Yeah, and, and in many ways, he is pushing back on kind of the dominant paradigm for understanding a secular age. So let's say, let's say the dominant story, narrative, paradigm for thinking about secularity is something like the secularization thesis, which was, um, in a way, is kind of 100 years old. It's birthed out of the very heart of modernity and the Enlightenment. And, it, and it's this prognostication that confidently believes the march of reason and science is going to make us wiser and wiser and enlighten us to the point that we can sort of grow out of religious belief and usher in the sort of atheistic, naturalistic kingdom of light. You know, like that's kind of, that's really uh, um, what... So therefore, a secular age is kind of like the realization of enlightenment. And, and in that story, um, the secular is identified and equated with unbelief, um, even atheism, naturalism, and so on. So, and, and this is kind of the story that new atheists like Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett or um, uh, uh, Sam Harris would tell. Taylor comes in and says, I... First of all, I don't think that's very good history. And secondly, he would say, I don't think that really describes the world in which people find themselves in 2010 or 2016. It, that the world that we find ourselves in, the culture in which we move, is feels way more complicated than that. So for Taylor, um, secularity and secularization is not synonymous with progressive unbelief and certainly not with progressive and growing atheism. Instead, what he would say is, a secular age is an age in which everyone's beliefs are contested and contestable. And so, absolutely, something like atheism becomes thinkable and possible in ways that, that it couldn't have been before. But, but what's, what intrigues Taylor is, it's interesting that not that many people sign up for it, really, at the end of the day. I mean, our op-ed pages tend to give a lot of play to a kind of almost fundamentalistic atheism, but you already see pushback on that from people who wouldn't necessarily identify themselves as religious, but would also say, you know what, that's not, that's not how I see myself. So for Taylor, this a secular age is this age of kind of contested, cross-pressured, multiple ways of believing otherwise. Um, and it's not synonymous with atheism per se. Gotcha. And we'll delve deeper into that, that feeling of the secular age. But why, I mean, your book is primarily aimed at Christians, but you say it's of interest to both religious and non-religious folks like to understand uh, the secular age. I mean, why is it important that everyone understands what it means to live in a secular age? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Taylor's conviction, and I think it's absolutely right, is, look, everybody knows the world has changed. Like, there's a, there's a different vibe, clearly, um, in the last hundred years, and certainly in the last 500 years in the West. And so he says, uh, um, and I guess what motivated me is, on the one hand, I want 
religious folks, Christians, for example, to have a better account of the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. But I, what I think is also in, equally intriguing is that an account like Taylor's helps people who might think of themselves as non-believers or unbelievers or something make sense of why they're not necessarily atheists or, or why they don't even really identify with that kind of binary, that they, they still hunger for a fullness, as Taylor puts it. They still, they, they, their lives are still characterized by a kind of transcendence. And, and even maybe they're wrestling with a certain kind of haunting of, of that there's something more. And, and I feel like um, when you try on Taylor's story and account of how we got to this point, he does a better job of doing justice to all the ways that um, supposed non-believers are still kind of haunted by something other than atheism, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, he talks about that a lot, that we're haunted uh, by the ghost of a secular age. Um, so let's go back to this, this feeling, right? So um, you, you mentioned earlier, we're filled with it. The world of the secular age is filled with these cross pressures. So it's basically, there's all these ideas and they're all contested and contestable. Um, how does that play into what he calls the Nova effect? Yeah. So, um, let's, let's pause for a moment on this metaphor of the cross pressure, right? So what he would say is, um, in a secular age, nobody can take their, either their belief or their unbelief as axiomatic, right? Like nobody's posture, nobody's kind of ultimate stance is universal. So you can't, because we all live on a street where our neighbors believe things, ultimate things differently than we do. So nobody's belief system or quote unquote unbelief system is axiomatic and a default for an entire society. Therefore, everybody is kind of pushed and pressed and constantly encounters the alternatives to what they believe, right? So you, you, you move in a world in which you rub up against stories, accounts, confessions that challenge your own way of how you understand the most fundamental features of being human and what the cosmos is and so on. And, and Taylor says that leads to what he calls a fragilization of our belief, which is everybody kind of, if they're really honest, if they're not sticking their head in the sand, um, they have to kind of own up to a certain degree of tentativeness of how they believe what they believe. It doesn't mean that they don't believe. It just means they're always kind of around the edges, haunted by the alternatives. And so Taylor says that that means no matter who you are, you experience this kind of cross-pressure. So if you're a believer, let's say you're a religious believer, um, what that means is you are constantly going to feel the pressure to... Uh, um, well, yeah, to feel the power of alternative stories, right? Like the fact that an evolutionary psychological account does this really incredible job of explaining a lot of things, and you start like thinking, man, that's pretty persuasive sometimes, right? And so you feel that pressure. You might say that the believer feels the pressure of doubt. But what Taylor gets at is that in the same place, in the same way, the unbeliever also can feel the pressure and temptation to believe. And that's, that's this kind of cross-pressure. So what you get then, it, it, the, the pressure scenario creates this kind of pressure cooker kind of, of metaphor or something. So you've got all this pressure building up. And so instead of issuing in this age of unbelief, what Taylor says is you get this kind of explosion, that, a way of grappling with all that pressure, and you get a million different ways of believing. So you, instead of the diminishment of spirituality and religion, in some ways you get the explosion of all kinds of religious or at least quasi-religious alternatives. Like, and, and that includes all kinds of religious expressions, but it also includes quasi-religious expressions like kind of eat, pray, love kinds of piety, or, you know, Oprah kind of piety, or... Uh, CrossFit. Um, cro yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, the, the way that people invest uh, um, things in their lives with a kind of ultimacy about them is actually their way of kind of 
getting a handle on this haunting. Right. I mean, but here's the interesting thing. So you know, we have all these different crossbars. There's a lot, it seems like there'd be a lot of tension there, but Taylor argues, and I think what your students were getting at when they said, you know, Taylor, just he's been reading my mail, is that this age can feel very flat and like it's full of malaise. So why is it that we have these like, you know, this tension that exists, these cross pressures, but you can just feel so empty and just meaningless? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it could be that what I actually think a consumer culture has a lot to do with that, that in some ways, this this would be Blaise Pascal, is basically what society does is gives us a million different ways to be distracted so we're not haunted, right? So you basically, you sort of spend your way out of, or you, 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 I mean, think of the million ways that we are offered to be distracted precisely so that you don't ever have to sit quietly in a room and feel the cross pressures. So uh, um, I think a consumer society offers us a million outs from feeling that existential pressure, which then issues in that kind of malaise, right? You're, you're sort of numbing yourself. This, this is the world that David Foster Wallace is always describing. Um, but there's maybe, um, the malaise can also come from the fact that we, we have been, we've come up with inadequate ways of really doing justice to the cross pressures, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Taylor feels like we need to probably be more honest that it's not just that we're haunted by a ghost, it's that there's someone there knocking, right? That there's there's something on the door, and we might be trying to sort of repress that, which which breeds some of that malaise. I, I don't know if that's an adequate account, but that would be part of it, I think. Part of it, and you mentioned David Foster Wallace, sort of uh, uh, you know a writer of the gospel of the secular age, um, who's kind of been able to grasp and sort of articulate uh, what it feels like. I mean, are there any other movies or writers who do a really good job at describing uh, what it feels like to live in a secular age? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's interesting with students. This is going to feel dated already. I, I'm I'm getting old, but I, I, it's inter- if you watch a movie like American Beauty, right? It's a, I think it's this really interesting account which begins totally with the flatness and malaise of just typical suburban middle class life, and then it looks like Lester Burnham pierces through that with um, you know, kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll sort of solutions. But that actually turns out to be totally inadequate. And so you get the Ricky Fitz character who, who manages to have a perspective on the world in which he sees beauty that is transcendent and he sees it in a bag of dancing trash, right? And, and it's, he says actually in that one sort of confessional climax moment, he says, you know, there's, there's, uh, that's when I knew that there was this force behind things. And so it's interesting, you get this real testimony to a kind of transcendence smack dab in the middle of this flattened experience of suburban life. That, that's one kind of example that comes to mind. Uh, I do think Wallace is kind of my favorite example. Um, are there, do you, can you think of others that come to mind for you when you think of that? Uh, I can't, actually. I mean, in some uh, ways, a lot of people make um, a lot out of the sort of um, recent kind of space film uh, you know, interstellar kinds of uh, um, films which are grappling with a kind of place we have in the cosmos and trying to do justice to the sense that there's something more, something other. Um, I could probably, yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I would want to muse on it some more to think of some alternative examples. Think of some more. Maybe Twilight Zone? Like, I always watch Twilight Zone. I'm like, these guys are getting yeah. us some like existential ideas when they're not when they're being yeah, kind of goofy. Yeah, it could well be. I mean, you wonder if something like um uh, uh X-Files. The, the the interesting thing about something like X-Files is you you've got the voice of enlightenment modernity in there always trying to explain away the other. And and we probably always feel like we have to do that kind of dynamic in a way. Right. Let's well, so go going on this idea of feeling, the feeling of our secular age. Um Taylor, and going back to Taylor's idea of he's trying to create a philosophical history of the secular age, he yeah. talks about uh, in the pre-modern world, uh, so this was before like the Renaissance, more or less. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, think before, before the Protestant Reformation, before the Renaissance, before the late Middle Ages. Gotcha. He says that the, the self uh, was a porous self and that now the modern self is a buffered self. So what does he mean by that? And yeah. Uh, how does the buffered self make it harder to believe in transcendence or God or something larger? Yeah, so the, 
the metaphor here, of course, is the porous self has all of these openings, right? So the human being is this kind of, it, it's, it's an entity, it's a being, it, there's a sense of selfhood, but there's a sense in which it's, it's open to things that are outside and other forces that can make these incursions. Now, and, and in both pagan worlds and Christian worlds, that meant um, you lived in this kind of enchanted universe where there were f- spirits and forces and God and gods, and, and they could have these sorts of incursions into your life. Now, on the one hand, that meant threat, right? So possession, uh, invasion, that kind of dynamic. But on the other hand, it also was grace, right? The infusion of grace, the indwelling of the spirit. So the poorest self was open, was vulnerable, um, which meant that the self could be both saved and helped, but also possessed and, you know, uh, um, incurred tormented. upon. Yes, exactly, tormented. Now, so there's, there's a very long, you know, 300-page history he tells here, but what he thinks, one of the key moves that happens in early modernity, and you could, you could if you're looking for just a poster child of this, it would be Rene Descartes, you know, that kind of, I think, therefore I am sort of dynamic, where now what happens is you get this emergence of a new idea of the self as kind of contained, and that's where he calls it buffered. So that now the self is this kind of atomistic monad that, that's self-contained, self-sufficient in many ways, and is not vulnerable, right? Is is uh, encased. And, and because of that, then, it's it's protected. It's no longer open to those torments and incursions and possessions and so on. And which then makes it possible for that self to stop believing in God and the gods and spirits and demons because there's no threat anymore. So there's, what Taylor is saying is you get a huge paradigm shift in Western cultures that makes it possible for something like atheism to become a live option because you've really reconfigured what you think's at stake for the self. Because prior to that, in that porous self, if you started to disbelieve or if you believed otherwise, you were open and vulnerable and you were kind of exposing yourself to danger. Whereas in the, the sort of modern Leibnizian monad, you're protected from that. And so you can kind of do whatever you want. Right, so, so that's sort of the birth of individualism. Yeah, uh, very much, and it's a very atomistic individualism, which then Taylor says you actually you needed to kind of reconfigure your understanding of the self for something like atheism or what he calls exclusive humanism to be a live option of belief. Otherwise, that would have been kind of unthinkable because it would have been like a suicide mission. Right. And he even makes the case that the buffered self not only makes it harder to believe in God or gods, uh, it even makes it hard to find meaning in personal secular projects as well. Yeah. And that's, so that's why he says it, it was never going to be sufficient for, for quote unquote modern man, you know, the enlightened human to just throw off religion, transcendence, eternity, because prior to that, Every single sort of worldview and belief system, even pagan belief systems, nonetheless invested significance in something like eternity and transcendence. So if you just sort of cut yourself off from eternity and transcendence, you basically cut yourself off from meaning. And so what Taylor, Taylor sees, the real sort of invention of a secular age is the attempt to forge ways to have a meaningful life, a significant life that makes no reference to eternity and no reference to transcendence. And and in a way, he thinks that is one of the most remarkable accomplishments of modernity, although you also get the impression from Taylor that he doesn't think it's very sustainable and it doesn't maybe quite pull itself off, which might be another explanation for that malaise. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts 
starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factory Meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter Smart Technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Right. And another interesting aspect of uh, Taylor's work is, you know, how we came to the secular age. He kind of, he, like you said, he argues against this sort of secularization theory that we got smarter, so we stopped believing in God. Um, but he makes the case that even reformations within Christianity actually helped disenchant the word, or not the word, the world, uh, and create conditions for secularization. How, what's that argument that he makes there? Because I thought yeah, that was really it, fascinating. It, it is an interesting argument. It's this kind of um, uh, the ways in which the Protestant Reformation, in very unintended ways, unleashed some of the forces of uh, secularization and disenchantment in this way. Uh, the Protestant Reformers were deeply critical of what they saw as the emergence of a very superstitious form of Christianity in late Middle Age uh, Catholic, Roman Catholicism, basically. And so the target of the Reformers' critique 
was this version of Christianity that wasn't just enchanted, it had basically turned it into magic, like this kind of superstitious magic. And they thought that's not true to scripture, that's not true to the nature of the cosmos. And therefore, they, they sort of undercut that sacramental understanding of the world in some ways. And uh, in doing so, they really kind of unleashed the forces of disenchantment, whereas really what they, what they meant to do was cap the forces of superstition. Uh, uh, the, the Frankensteinish effect here was that the monster kind of outran them, and they ended up giving birth in some ways to enlightenment disenchantment. Right. And I mean, a lot of people I've heard argue that Protestant or just like what we're seeing, like social justice warriors or liberalism is just, you know, secular Protestantism. Yeah, that. in some ways. That's right. And, and, um, and you can see what then happens is that's precisely why people invest something like justice with eternal significance. I mean, that's the new religion then, right? It's the, it, you've got to invest something with this kind of full significance and ultimacy. And so if you've basically learned to be a kind of flattened secular liberal, you you might be tempted to invest justice with that kind of place that God used to have. Gotcha. So after reading and, you know, writing about Taylor's work, I mean, do you think the depth of the secular age will deepen or will change course as time marches on? That's a great question. I, I, um, I'm not prone to prognostication. I, I think it's always going to be a mixed report and a complex affair. And I, I do think one of the really important gifts of Taylor's work is he's really trying to get people to appreciate how messy and complex the situation is, right? He doesn't think there's, he can't pigeonhole stuff. My, my sense is um, I think there will be some forces of secularization and uh, um, and really the kind of refusal of religious belief that are going to deepen and intensify. However, I think those could become louder precisely because they're a bit of a last gasp. And I'm, uh, uh, I'm going a little bit beyond Taylor here. I, I'm not at all convinced that the kind of exclusive humanist take on how to be human is really sustainable, because I don't think it does justice to uh, a kind of fullness of the cosmos that keeps pushing back on us. And I think we can already see uh, some cracks in the secular in that respect. I think you can already see uh, um, the, the certain failure of these accounts to do justice to who we are and what we're called to be. And so I actually see in the next generation or two a new openness uh, to the recovery of enchantment. And that, there's no going back. There's no romantic uh, repristination of where we were. But I do think that people might more and more sense the um, inadequacy of of kind of flattened, imminent accounts of where we are. And so I'm I'm interested to watch it. And that's that's partly why I wanted religious communities to to have a appreciation for Taylor's account because I do think that there are openings and opportunities there. Right. And this doesn't necessarily mean that this re-enchantment will be Christian. It could also manifest itself in, I think, paganism is like, there's been an in increase. In some ways, in... that's right. That's right. And, and uh, um, we, we, it would be a different conversation to then ask why or whether Christianity would be perhaps the best or one of the more robust accounts of, of what it means to make sense of transcendence. That would be a more apologetic kind of conversation. I mean, I do think... Um, uh, there are renewals in Judaism, for example, that are happening that, that also bear witness to that. Your uh, latest book, You Are What You Love, seems to provide answers, but it's primarily directed at Christians yeah. on how to re-enchant our disenchanted secular age. Um, and you start off the book arguing that the question that uh, Jesus keeps asking throughout the gospel is, what do you want? Why is that such an important question to be able to answer in our secular age? Yeah, I, I, I love that we're building the bridge between these two books, because um, I think one of the things that Taylor emphasizes and does a good job of is really kind of naming the fact that people in, in a secular age, the questions that they feel are less questions of knowledge and, like, 
Well, in a way, there are less questions and there are more hungers. You know, like how how do I make sense of these hungers that I have? And um, I think that actually resonates with biblical Christianity. I don't think um, I don't think the gospel is offered primarily as a set of intellectual answers to propositional questions. I think it brings us to an encounter with a person who um, is the lover of our souls and answers to the deepest hungers and longings of who we are as humans. And so what I'm, I'm trying to get at is that human beings are not just thinking things, right? It's, it's a, again, pushing back on this element of modernity. We're, we're not just thinkers. We're not even just believers. At the end of the day, human beings are lovers. And um, I, I think Taylor senses something like that. And I think when you start reading the scriptures with new eyes, you see it all over the place. And you, you brought this great example of this Russian film called Stalker. Because yeah, I think the question is, like, you can, yeah, yeah you, you ask yourself, like, okay, what do I want? But then you say, okay, I think I know what I want, but like, what do you really, yeah. really want? And you say this Russian film can provide some, you know, that can teach us something important about figuring out what we really want. Yeah, so in, in Tarkovsky's film, by the way, if, if, if folks have never watched Tarkovsky, a lot of this stuff is available free online. And uh, he's also the one who did the film Andrei Rublev about uh, the famous iconographer. It's just a stunning, stunning work. But, but in this film, The Stalker, very quickly, the port, port that interests us is this guy brings these people to a room in which you get what you want. Right, so this it's this kind of magical, sacred room where once you step inside, it's going to give you what you want. And as they get to the threshold of the door, Stalker basically says, "The guide says, you know, all right, here we are. Who wants to go first? And both of them get cold feet because they start to realize, what if I don't want? What if I don't really want what I think I want? Right? But there can be this gap between what I know and believe and think and what my heart has." learn to really hunger for. And uh, that's, that's the tension that interests me. I, I think our loves, our deepest, most fundamental longings and hungers are shaped and primed and directed by the practices that we're immersed in. And they're not just the outcomes of what we think. And so there's a kind of unconscious force or at least pre-conscious force to our deepest hungers and longings. And we might not realize the, the extent to which they've been shaped um, by cultural practices that have taught us to love something at that unconscious level that is quite antithetical to what we believe on a conscious propositional level. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and so this brings us to your idea of liturgies, um, that we're surrounded yeah. by these liturgies. And like liturgies not, don't necessarily have to be religious. Um, so first for our listeners who might not be familiar with liturgy, because that's not really popular in a lot of uh, no. Christian churches nowadays. Uh, what do you mean by that? What is a liturgy? Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually trying to sort of recover and repurpose what is an old kind of churchy word, but I'm using it in a much broader sense. So for me, liturgy is just a shorthand term to talk about love-shaping practices, right? So think of rhythms, routines, rituals that aren't just something that you do, they do something to you. And, and ultimately, what they do to you is they're, they're covertly and subtly and implicitly kind of training you to love certain goods, a certain vision of the good life. They're, they're aiming your heart in a certain direction. And if, if you think of liturgy in that broad sense, and I'm using the word liturgy just so that we can feel the kind of religious force of cultural practices, cultural rituals, then you'll start to realize that, man, there are kind of liturgies everywhere, right? This is, this is certainly not confined to the walls of churches, because there are all kinds of cultural rituals that we give ourselves over to that are implicitly training us to love certain things as if they were ultimate. Right. And you give the example of a secular liturgy would be like going shopping. Uh, yeah. A great example. The, mall, the mall is the cathedral of consumerism, right? So, and, and it's the point here is the way you learn to love something as ultimate is not because it teaches your intellect some idea. It's because 
the rituals and liturgies of these institutions and practices actually capture your imagination, co-opt your heart's longings, and sort of train you to love something as ultimate in ways that are, it's like the way to your heart is through your body. And so the mall is this kind of liturgical experience, which is, it's not like you walk into the mall and they say, well, here's the 16 things the mall believes, right? Or, you know, this is, this is what the mall wants you to think. The mall doesn't want you to think. That's the last thing it wants to do. Instead, it's drawing you into an experience, a, a liturgy, a ritual that is kind of picturing for you what the good life is. And, and the mall's outreach, its evangelism is marketing, which totally understands that we're not thinking things. It knows that we're lovers. It knows that we have these hungers. And so what marketing holds up to us is not information, but the invitation into a story where some good or product or service is going to finally give you the happiness that you've been longing for. Right. And you even talk about there's been research done where when you know people buy an Apple product, like the same part of our brain that lights up when someone's worshiping lights up when you're buying or thinking about yeah. that Apple product. And we all know the cult of Apple, right? I mean, I'm looking, I've got three Mac devices sitting on my, three Apple devices sitting on my desk here right now. And, and um, there's, a, there's a fantastic uh, PBS Frontline documentary called The Persuaders, which is um, uh, this and, and, you know, it's PBS, so this is not a religious organization at all. But they, they do this study of how marketing works. And, and completely voluntarily, all these big marketing executives start talking about literally evangelism. When they wanted to understand how brands worked, they studied cults. And so the, the kind of religious force of brand loyalty, of how they communicate uh, to the heart. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, if, if listeners are interested, Google it, you'll find it free online. It's a fascinating study. So what, have you been, as you've been talking, Jamie, about um, you know, shaping what we want is, is through the body. It's done through behavior. Uh, it sounds like you're making an, uh, an Aristotelian virtue ethic yeah. argument uh, about training character, training the soul. Is that totally. what you're doing? Totally. I mean, in, and insofar, and, and in that sense, um, you could say ancient Christian thought was uh, already appropriating um, something like Aristotle's framework as a way of making sense of biblical intuition. So, um, yeah, the, the, the conviction here is really a different model of the human person, right? So the center of the human person here is not located in, in the head so much. It's not located in the intellect. Though that's not unimportant, it's just that the center and seat of the human person is located in something more like the affections, in what in what the Bible calls the heart, which is this visceral seat of our longings and hungers. But those are trained, and uh, in, in, in there you sort of acquire these habits. And for Aristotle, virtues, of course, are those good habits which are the internal dispositions that you acquire that make you sort of inclined in a certain direction. And uh, I, I just think it's a very rich way of trying to make sense of human action. What, what I, I also think we live in an interesting time insofar as a lot of cognitive science and neuroscience right now is confirming very ancient intuitions about human action works and that so much of what I do in a given day is governed by these kinds of habits that I've acquired, not because I'm thinking through all the options and then making some conscious choice to do X. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of spiritual significance to thinking through that and appreciating that. So um, that's really interesting. But And you make the case finally in this book um, that you know for Christianity to thrive in a postmodern age, it needs to embrace uh, ancient forms of liturgy and worship. Which I think is interesting because the trend you've been seeing in the church for the past 20 or so years is making church more pre or more postmodern, making it less church-like. Yeah. Um, why do you think that approach misses the mark? Well, I think I, I, I understand the impetus behind it. I, I, it. There's a kind of missional desire behind it, which is we don't want people freaked out. We want people to sort of feel welcome. So let's make, you know, people don't like going to old stodgy churches, but they like going to the mall. So why don't we make the church more like the mall? I I, I understand the logic. Here's the problem. What I'm saying is the mall's liturgy 
the very form of the practice of the mall is itself already a loaded game that is aimed and oriented and indexed to a very different vision of the good life, which is the consumer gospel, which tells you stuff will make you happy. And it commodifies everything in the world. And so when you sort of appropriate that form and think, well, we're going to appropriate that form, we're just going to kind of put Jesus content in it. You, you think you're Jesifying the mall, but what you're actually doing is commodifying Jesus. Because people who've been in that mall liturgy, who are in that practice, know, oh, everything that's in the mall is there to make me happy. Oh, there's Jesus on the shelves now. He must be there to make me happy. It's, it's, it, you've completely reconfigured the encounter. I, I'm, I'm suggesting that um, the robust sort of thickness of ancient Christian worship and spiritual disciplines is exactly the countermeasure we need uh, to those kinds of secular liturgies. And, and I'm not, that's not a sort of fundamentalist point. I'm not saying, you know, go hide out in some sort of enclave. What, what I'm saying is precisely so that we can be centered in a biblical story, you need the thickness and, and by the way, the embodiment, the tactile nature of um, historic Christian worship practices so that the gospel gets into your bones so that you can then resist uh, um, the, the lure of these, these other practices. The irony for me is how much of contemporary Christianity is also then just reduces the gospel to a message you get um, sort of in your intellectual receptacle. I, I, I think the church has largely bought into modernity and thinking thingism, and that's been our problem. Right, they've bought into the buffered self, right? That you're sort of this atomized the individual. Self, yeah, and they've they've bought into basically thinking human beings are brains on a stick, uh, with with emotional bellies. So what we do is a typical church service is, is let's stir their emotional, let's fill their emotional belly for thirty minutes of of emotivist song, so that they're satisfied to at least sit down for the forty five minute lecture where we're going to tell them what to think or you know fuel their intellect. And I, I'm just saying that that's a really stunted reductionistic picture of the human person and that embedded in the ancient practices of the church is a much more holistic uh, account that I think does more justice to who we are. So what does a, a postmodern ancient Christianity look like at a congregation or an individual level? Um I mean, it's going to. It, there, I don't want to deny that there's going to be a certain strangeness or weirdness about it compared to uh, um, the sorts of rituals that we're used to in modernity, right? Uh, but I actually think it's, it's that's its strength because it sends signals about the strangeness of transcendence in a flattened, imminent, secular age. So, um, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to pick a particular horse here, but I guess I would say it would look like, I mean, it's not going back to your grandma's church. Do you know I mean? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about inheriting, say, the core of, of uh, what an Anglican sort of vision of the church would look like, but doing it in a contextualized way where you're engaged in an urban environment and you know who your neighbors are. Um, so it's, it's sort of like... Um, a Catholic church in the middle of Austin. <laughs> you know, like I'm, it, it's 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 both ancient strangeness with contemporary relevance. I, I actually think it's our strangeness that makes us more relevant. That's interesting. I think it's interesting too. It's like right now we're working on a series on the site about uh, Christianity's man problem uh, mm. across denominations. You know, mm. there's more women and men sitting yeah. in the pews, but like the, the few exceptions are like Eastern Orthodox yeah. uh, Catholicism. Um, and I wonder if like just like it's that strangeness, that embodiment, that vigorousness that the the worship service requires is maybe appealing to men on a level that we're not getting today. That's a great. Uh, hypothesis. I mean, it's it's not something I've thought about. I think anecdotally, I have I've seen the impression of of what you're talking about. Sometimes I think, um, I, I mean, there's there's a certain layers of gendered questions that we would have to sort out to to really have that conversation. I I think uh, some of the churches that attract men are also ones that can be very intellectualist. Right and actually buy into thinking thingism, and in that case, I'd be worried about how we've just configured malehood or <laughs> manhood right, or right. something there. But but yeah, no, it's an it's an interesting thesis. I mean, um, 
certainly there is a long history of uh, um, men feeling called to um, uh, a monastic life, right? That was not, um, uh, and that was seen to have a kind of vigor and rigor about it. And the question was almost, um, are you man enough to do this life? Not, this is a retreat from the world. Yeah. And so, I mean, on an individual level, what would the sort of, you know, incorporating ancient worship or liturgy, what would that look like in a person's life? Well, I mean, you, I, you, I, you mentioned disciplines, like spiritual disciplines. Yeah. 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 I mean, I do think, I, I, I think it needs to have a congregate, it means having a congregational center to your spiritual life. And so it means um, sort of locating yourself in a communal expression of this faith where you keep getting centered around the word and table, uh, that, that kind of um, ancient sort of Catholic expression. But then uh, on an individual level, I think, it, yeah, it's the difference between thinking of discipleship mostly as intellectual content uptake and, and imagining it as a way of life where you are practicing these disciplines that rehabituate you. So in, in that sense, the work of, say, Dallas Willard and, and Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, you know, classic disciplines of fasting, morning and evening prayers, um, uh, the liturgical calendar, I think these are all ways that are actually rehabituating us, not just informing us. Reforming us, not just informing us. Right, you got to shape the character, shape the soul. Yeah, yeah, which takes well, practice and takes repetition and takes time. Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the other, I think, problem that people have uh, with modernity, this mindset that things can happen just right away. Um, but Yeah, because if, Aristotle if, if you are what you think, no. you just go to the lecture, you finally get the piece of information you need, and like, okay, I'm good to go. Except we all know that that doesn't work. So it's it's taking seriously the fact that I'm more than what I think, which is why I need to learn to rehabituate my hungers and longings and that takes time you know it's it's like it's like a workout of the soul and you keep exercising it's not you can't even just have these you can't go um work out for three if you're if you're 45 you can't go work out for three months and say all right i'm good to go right because in you know in six weeks you're right back to the flabby self that you were Right. Well, Jamie, this has been a great conversation. I mean, I would love to talk to you for your longer, uh, longer because there's so much we could talk about. But uh, where can people find out more about uh, your your two books we talked about and the rest of your work? Oh, yeah. Uh, probably the easiest place is if you just went to jameskasmith.com. And uh, my publisher has got uh, pretty much all the info that you would need on there, speaking engagements when I'm out and around the country and stuff about the books and articles and things like that, and some videos uh, that might help people um, get a grasp of the book, too. Awesome. Well, Jamie Smith, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. My guest today was Jamie Smith. He is a professor of philosophy at Calvin College and the author of several books. Uh, but today we discussed How Not to Be Secular and You Are What You Love. You can find those books on Amazon.com. Check them out. They're really fascinating. You can find out more information about Jamie's work because he's written a ton more uh, by going to jameskasmith.com. Make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash secular where you can find uh, links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.